welcome to another episode of detention solidarity networks podcast detention solidarity network is an online space to critically engage with the structures and experiences of detention that constitute the carceral state in india i'm shelza and i'm somya in this episode we discuss a recent report released by a collective called citizens against hate titled the dismantling of minority education police violence in aligarh muslim university and jamia media islamia citizens against hate is a collective of individuals and groups committed to a democratic secular and caring india it is an open collective of lawyers researchers and human rights practitioners with members drawn from a wide range of backgrounds this report is the result of fact finding efforts by a team of lawyers and researchers who investigated police entering these two major university campuses and hostels attacking students who were protesting against the citizenship amendment act on 15th of december 2019 the two universities they look at are aligarh muslim university or amu which is in aligarh uttar pradesh and jamia millia islamia or jmi which is in delhi both the universities are nationally renowned and have a long and rich history Quoting from the report, as historically entrenched institutional strongholds close to the national capital, AMU and JMI continue to be symbols and principal sites of Muslim participation in national political life. Both universities' history, location, diversity, architecture and ideals also represented in the mode and grit of constitutional articulation of dissent embody the plurality of culture and construction that the constitution protects under article 30 in the right of minorities to establish and administer educational institutions so today we have with us ishita and aiman to talk a little bit more about this report and be in discussion with us Ishita is an independent legal researcher who has written extensively on international law matters and is interested in undertaking comparative assessments between domestic and international laws. Eman Khan is a researcher based between Bangalore and New Delhi. She holds an MA in women's studies from Tata Institute of Social Sciences Mumbai. Her work focuses on minority rights in India. Welcome to the podcast Ishta and Eman. So nice to have you. Hi, thanks for having us here. Let's start by going over the chronology of events that resulted in police violence against students of Jamia and Aligarh Muslim University during the anti-CA protests in 2019. In Aligarh Muslim University and Jamia Millia Islamia, the mobilization for these protests started around the time when CA was tabled, which is around 10th December, and then it was subsequently passed on 12th December. I must point out that university students of these two institutions spearheaded the movement against CA, were amongst the first ones to come out in huge numbers to protest. the women especially of jamia millia islamia took a lead role in organizing and speaking about why ca is discriminatory and spreading more information about it there was increased police surveillance on these campuses since the 13th because overnight also students were protesting and talking loudly on loudspeakers regarding ca 
even with this increased surveillance and police presence outside their campuses, most of these students restricted themselves to standing and gathering in large numbers outside the campus. There was no attack or anything of this sort from the police all of these days. But what happened on 15th specifically was that the students were protesting outside Jamia Milia and the police along with RAF, which is the Rapid Action Force, started attacking these protesters and then entered the university campus. Few hours later, on the same day, the same thing happened at uh, Aligarh Muslim University, where UP police entered the campus along with Rapid Action Force. In both these places, actually, there was no prior permission that the police took from the university administration, and they did not give any prior notice. They just entered the campus. Another important aspect to this is that the police and the Rapid Action Force did not use other means to disperse the crowd. They immediately used extremely disproportionate force. Some of the things that the police used were tear gas shells, sound bombs, rubber bullets, pellets. And in some instances, especially in Jamia Malia Islamia, police also fired live ammunition. In Aligarh Muslim University, the police also destroyed public property of the university and personal property of the students. Like they identified motorcycle bikes which were owned by the students and destroyed even that. As we all know that these universities are both central universities plus they are spaces of higher education. A lot of the students in these universities were MPhil and PhD students and because the attack of the police was extended to library and other such places a lot of students have also lost their research material. Another thing to this entire thing is that on 15 December, there was only male police officials and individuals from Rapid Action Force who were present. It was these male police officials who also harassed women protesters. There are a lot of testimonies which suggest that women protesters were even beaten up by male police officials. These students have been really unfettered with this violence and they have taken a lot of action on their own to record, to have documentary evidence and to have videographic evidence to the violence that happened to them. So subsequently, they also filed a lot of complaints to National Human Rights Commission, which is NHRC, regarding the violence that took place. To understand the NHRC, we have to also look briefly at the legal traditions that the NHRC has been through, right? NHRC has managed before to intervene in several cases. For example, the Naroda Patia case, which happened after the Gujarat massacre. The NHRC was instrumental in stating that the investigation should be moved from one investigatory body to another. It has passed several excellent guidelines, for example, in the case of extrajudicial executions. And in light of that, the recent observations and recommendations recommendations it has made with respect to student protesters at both Jamia and AMU. It's been a complete disappointment. One of the main things that the NHRC does note is that the students should have taken a prior permission from the university administration for purposes of protest. Secondly, it has also stated that the university administration was to be blamed because there was no conciliatory mechanism to see that the grievances of these student protesters were addressed. In several pronouncements, starting from the Himmatlal Shah judgment, the Supreme Court has gone on to observe that this right to protest may not be absolute in nature, but then it cannot be clamped down absolutely either. So, for example, regulations could extend to the extent of maybe stating that certain rules must be followed while carrying out a protest or certain roads only could be taken and others couldn't. However, there has to be approximate anticipation of violence taking place before any kind of protest is curtailed. 
So the NHRC observation goes directly against this right to protest. It's a basic principle of law that any action which is taken must not only be impartial and independent, but also perceived as being impartial and independent, which in this case, it clearly wasn't. The investigation which was carried out by the officials also took place while these officials were stationed in the UP police headquarters. So a number of students had actually to visit all these headquarters, which were manned by the UP police, who had been accused of perpetrating the violence themselves, which again built into the psychological terrorizing framework. Apart from this, the NHRC states that the real perpetrators behind the incidents must be found out. So essentially, it tries to negate any form of agency of the students. And it says that students can be easily persuaded by other people, in this case, political parties. It also states that there was no material evidence available to come to a conclusion that police officials were involved and any kind of damage which has happened was unavoidable merely. So on this basis, probably some kind of disciplinary measures could be taken against individual police officials. Now, again, the Supreme Court, for instance, in the DK Basu case itself has noted that when police violence is committed, there cannot be ocular evidence in each and every case, right? So a number of times circumstantial evidences come into play. For example, in this case, we see that a number of properties were vandalized. There were tear gas shells which were found inside the rooms of individual students. Video footage is available which was circulated widely over social media of the police forcibly entering inside the Jamia library, beating up student protesters, using excessive violence, and even destroying the CCTV footages so that no further evidence could be available. And the NHRC, which has the power to in fact actually state that certain footages could be retrieved and sent for FSL verifications to see whether the footage is true or not, did not take any of these actions, but just simply went on to dismiss that there was no material evidence available. One other problem was also with respect to medical legal certificates. Now, where the state itself or the police itself is the perpetrator, it is very difficult to actually get these medical legal certificates prepared. In overwhelming number of cases, it has been seen that the police has asked the medical personnel not to record the appropriate reasons behind the injuries which were caused to them. And therefore, the NHRC could have relied more on these circumstantial evidences. Hmm. Yeah, those are some really good points there. I think another thing is that there were specific groups that were very clearly targeted. Emma already mentioned the women protesters were treated in a specific way. The report also cites cases of communist slurs being used by the police, specifically framing Muslims and Kashmiri individuals or students as terrorists. Yeah, this entire attack actually on both these universities was principally an attack on Muslimness because it seemed as though people who had visible Muslim markers were attacked much more. And those were the kind of abuses and the slurs that the police also used. After this attack on 15 December, on 10th February 2020, which is say around two months later, the student body of Jamia Millia Islamia had planned for a protest march from Jamia Millia Islamia campus to the parliament. They had taken permission for a and they were planning a long peaceful march but in anticipation of this march there was presence of rapid action force and Delhi police officials right outside the campus as soon as the march started officials and rapid action force started attacking students in this event on 
10th February, actually, there were a lot of female police officials, which is unlike last time. But if you go through some of the testimonies of students, you see that specifically those women who had visible markers of being Muslim were attacked. Women who were wearing hijabs and burqas were attacked by the police. They were dragged. They were lati charged. They were beaten up. In some instances, women were dragged on the floor and then police used their boots, their lathis to stomp on their private parts, on their genitals. Some of the women were even admitted in a hospital which is closed by Jamia Millia Islamia, Al-Shifa Hospital. If you go through their medical reports, you'd see that there were vaginal injuries that they had suffered after the event on 10th February. Along with this, this entire thing, what was also happening through the attack on 15th and subsequent attack on 10th February, these students were ill-treated and their religion was used against them throughout, even by guards, even by constables, even by people who were from Rapid Action Force. They were continuously using slurs such as, you should go to Pakistan, you do not have a right to study in this country, that you should be reading the Kalma because this is your day to die. What specifically happened in ANU was that the police officials even attacked the ambulance, which was taking students for medical aid. And then when the students asked, why are you attacking the vehicle, which is taking students to hospital? Hospitals, the police replied saying, because today is your day to die. Another thing where there is a lot of student testimonies which support the argument that Kashmiris were particularly attacked and the police kept using language to say that what we have done in Kashmir will be doing here. So you should be very aware of this. There was a incident inside the Jamia library wherein there were around 8 to 10 Kashmiri students and the police openly was saying that there are Kashmiris inside, let's kill all of them. Maro in Sabko. Another thing was this continuous use of these slurs which are regularly used for Muslims in the country, which is that they are all jihadi, that these students are jihadi, so we have to attack them. Another communal slur which was used to refer to Muslims is that they are katwe. So this was the language which was used by the police. The fact finding sees that even among the men who had beards or who were wearing very visible Muslim markers were attacked much more than other students. And I think one last thing that I would like to touch upon to communicate the extent to which this attack was religious in nature was that in Yamia Millia Islamia, there is a mosque inside the campus and people were praying inside that mosque and the police entered glasses and windows of that mosque. They beat up students who were praying. They also beat up the imam of the mosque who generally leads the prayers. Thank you for sort of laying out the patterns of police violence, which clearly based on testimonies of all the students were religious and racialized. The extent of it is horrifying, to say the least. There were also police attacks against students at other universities while the whole anti-CA movement was going on last year. And the report itself notes in the annexure the other universities that participated. But this report specifically looks at my minority educational institutions, those that are protected under Article 30 of the Constitution. So how do you think this fits in with the larger legal context where new laws have been passed that target specific groups? For instance, you know, the cow slaughter laws, religious conversion laws, and even the CA itself. I think this report departs from the other reports in that it specifically talks about how Muslim intellectuals and their growing thought processes are being increasingly viewed by the state as something which is dangerous. 
since partition, Muslims have always been questioned over their allegiances. And one of the fundamental guarantees which Article 30 of the Constitution does is state that group rights or identity rights will be protected. All of these legislations which have come through, for example, the CA, the cow slaughter laws, or even the religious conversion laws, some of them are on the face of it very... It's very superficially worded. But law cannot be diverse from the social realities. You see, you know, these vigilante groups which have been hounding couples stating that there was some degree of coercion involved in the marriage and therefore the person must be picked up. I think this is an instance of a collective failure of the state missionary. It it reflects upon the processes and the attitudes which have come to bear upon the Muslim population. For example, the CA itself, what it does is it states that refugees excluding Muslims will be allowed entry into India and can also gain citizenship in India. It kind of transfers the ball in the judiciary's court because judicial review in these matters is very sparse. If we were to see the Assam NRC as an example, the exclusion has mostly happened out of the 1.9 million people who have been excluded from the NRC, the final list, it has been Muslims. So it's it's important to note how these laws have been discriminately used against Muslims, even though they might have been framed in very generalist terms. Another example could be triple talaq, which was kind of brought forward, stating that it goes on to protect the rights of the Muslim woman. But what it essentially does is it goes on to criminalize Muslims who are divorcing their wives disproportionately as compared to men from other religious communities. And I think one also has to see and look at the violence which happens after these laws have been passed. It kind of gives a lot of impunity to vigilante groups which are already functional on the ground. Even though these vigilante groups and other things are not really stated in any of these laws. But one must see that after the CA was passed, in Uttar Pradesh, there were 23 Muslims who were killed by the police and by what in UP they call police mitras, friends of the police, who actually don't have any record anywhere. They were not in uniform, but they had access to the weaponries that the state police officials do. And it is becoming so difficult to pinpoint who was the person who was behind the violence. In a year of this violence that was carried out in AMU and Jamia, and uh, Ishita spoke about the gaps with NHRC. Another gap with this entire thing is that till date, there is not a single FIR against any police official who carried out this violence in AMU and Jamia. So this is the level to which this kind of impunity is also increasing. Yeah, that's a really important point. One of the things that you just said is that there's been no FIR against the police. And there can be. There is reason for police to be taken to account for using disproportionate force. And the police did violate its internal guidelines. If we take an international human rights perspective, these incidents of police violence do constitute cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment under the UN Convention Against Torture. But India doesn't exactly have an adequate legal framework to address torture, right? This is actually one of the main recommendations of the report that India should ratify the UN Convention on Torture. It should also come up independently with a torture act. There were two bills which were brought about in 2010 and 2017. Those bills have some inadequacies. I think the reason why international law frameworks are also important is because irrespective of how the Home Minister comes up and states that human rights are purely an international concern, it's not. The Supreme Court itself has shown in several cases, for example, the Vishaka case, 
or maybe the Sheila Barsi case, the Chandrima Das case. In all of these cases, the Supreme Court has stated how international covenants can be used to interpret the fundamental rights as long as any provisions within the international covenants do not go against the domestic law framework. In, in several cases, when it comes to police violence, excessive police violence, there has been a deficiency of sorts. In the international framework, we have four important principles. Necessity, proportionality, distinction and precaution. Out of which the principle of proportionality has been addressed only recently in some cases, for example, the Anuradha Bhasin judgment with respect to administrative decisions. The principle of precaution, which is again a very important principle that states that even if a first use of force has been done, it does not necessarily mean that all kinds of weaponry can be used to attack. So for instance, here, like Emin pointed out, there was increasing usage of rubber bullets, tear gas, even live ammunition. So all of this cannot be used. A, it's not proportionate to the response because these were unarmed students who were merely protesting. B, principle of precaution would state that even less lethal modes of weaponry, for example, a tear gas shell, in confined spaces, it could lead to disproportionate amounts of harm against the individual. In one case, a person lost his hand. His hand had to be amputated because a tear gas shell fell near him and it exploded. Apart from this, the principle of distinction also goes on to state that not everybody could be attacked. So there has to be a difference maintained between people who have been protesting and further engaging in violence and people who were not involved. When it comes to both these universities, we have seen the police and the RAF inside libraries and mosques, like Emin has mentioned before. They have entered and students who were not even involved in the protests have been discriminately attacked. In 2017 itself, the United Nations General Assembly came out with a resolution which stated that torture cannot be limited to custodial settings. We do have an increasing jurisprudence on torture, but again, in India, it is limited to custodial settings. We have B.K. Basu, we have Francis Corali, Mullen, and all of these emerge through Article 21, which guarantees the right of dignity to all humans and so on. There have been certain cases like the Nambi Narayanan case wherein the Supreme Court has stated that even any form of mental or psychological agony could amount to torture. So there are frameworks for this. But outside of the custodial settings, whether the excessive use of force could actually constitute torture or not, that has not yet been explored. Now, what the difference is between torture and a mere act of serious misconduct or police excesses or excessive use of violence is the implications that follow. So a law on torture could do away with the defense of a person stating that he was ordered to commit a particular act. It would also hold a superior to account under the principles of superior responsibility, stating that he should have taken adequate measures to either halt the operation or maybe take measures, post facto measures, right? For example, disciplinary actions or uh, commencement of prosecution against the individuals and so on. Torture is also in the nature of a just cogence principle, which states that it is prohibited by all civilized nations of the world. So essentially, again, subject to the discretion of individual states, if a person today who is accused of committing torture and is proven before any court of law that he has committed torture, but the state has not taken adequate measures against him, he could always be held before courts of any other state under the principle of universal jurisdiction. However, 
presently under Indian law, all that we have is Section 330 of the IPC, which states that voluntarily causing any form of hurt by a public servant for the purposes of extracting any information or confession could result in this period of imprisonment or so on and so forth, which is completely inadequate. In both the cases of AMU and Jamia, we see that people were particularly targeted. They were humiliated. They were stripped, beaten. And the argument of the report has been this, that even if such acts do not constitute torture, they would definitely constitute cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. This is also an indirect appeal which the report makes to the authorities to bring forth such legal framework. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that we are in desperate need of such a framework that could actually allow us to see some justice happening. Once we are seeing these kind of horrifying things that are taking place, we, we don't know where to go with that. So I think that we definitely need a better framework when it comes to various forms of torture. Another question that we had, and the report looks at this in quite some detail, is the psychological impact on students who were attacked and who witnessed the whole thing even. The report notes that from December 2019 to Feb 2020, several therapists across the country also came together to provide voluntary therapeutic support to the students who faced high levels of violence. The report goes on to say and talk about the university being a safe space for students where people from various backgrounds access knowledge. So to, to go through something so violent within the university campus where they are meant to be safe, where they're meant to learn, is something which is bound to have psychological impact. This is also kind of connected to the continuing harassment and uh, criminalization that has happened of the students in these two universities, Jamia and AMU, because it's not that there's nothing that happened after this violence happened. For last one year, these students are being harassed by the police in multiple ways. There is a complete media trial which is going on regarding students of AMU and Jamia, wherein these students are portrayed to be anti-national, so to say, to be terrorists, to be jihadis, to be planning and plotting against India. All of this because they chose to protest against a law which impacts them directly, right? And this has had severe traumatic impact on the students. In AMU itself, actually, there are no clear numbers in terms of the number of arrests and interrogations that students have been called for. But largely, if I had to mention, in AMU, there were around 56 students who were named in FIR following 15 December and there were around 1200 to 1300 unnamed persons that the FIR stated at that point of time and through this entire one year they have just picked up using that whole 1200 to 1300 unnamed persons they have just randomly picked up a lot of students saying that they were involved and this is the FIR which supports that. There were different charges which were invoked against these students of AMU and Jamia. In Jamia sedition, UAPA was invoked against the students in UP, we see a pattern of largely invoking rioting, rioting with a weapon, threatening public servants, attempt to murder. These sections have been invoked against the students. To move this now to the larger psychological impact that they are going through, and this is after sustaining grievous injuries 
on 15 December itself, the students have absolutely been traumatized. Some of the testimonies suggest that students are completely sleepless. They feel mentally harassed. And I think one important point here is about the kind of social isolation that they are going through now. After this chain of events, there is a lot of people, uh, you know, in their mohallas, in their neighborhoods who have distanced themselves from these students. So that is leading up to a different kind of social isolation now just because they attend these universities, just because they are enrolled in courses in these universities. Students have continuously spoken about anxiety and, you know, a sense of hopelessness that they feel because of this continuing criminalization and media trial. I mean, we are seeing a lot of disinformation about these students, which is continuously being circulated, portraying them in a certain way. That, oh, because you are someone from Jamia, you are someone from AMU, this is how you must be. There are these assumptions now that people have. To say a little bit from Istanbul Protocol, which is an international guideline for states and civil society, especially regarding torture, it states that torture is a means of attacking an individual's fundamental modes of psychological and social functioning. And this is what we are seeing, that even if these students were not detained for very long hours, even though some of them were, it is not to say that the other students are not going through this kind of attack on their psychological and social functioning. Their entire lives are completely impacted by this. But I think to also speak positively on that note is to say that the students of Jamia and AMU are extremely brave. And they are also continuously in this entire year have been really taking on the fight to put out their narratives. And I think that is a very strong thing that has come out from this entire incident because they are also very aware that police and media and several other individuals are trying to steal their narratives and, you know, push a completely different narrative, which takes away their agency, which takes away the very fact that, you know, they are thinking, speaking individuals. And uh, these students are not allowing that to happen. They are going and occupying all the spaces that there are to speak about what actually happened to them. And they are very unfettered with this kind of continuous harassment that they are facing. I feel that is something that we are all learning a lot from every day. Yeah, I think their resilience and strength is definitely something to be applauded and something we can all really learn from. So thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's also just so pertinent that we're doing this recording one year after these events have happened. And a lot of times we forget what the lives of people are and what they're going through having had these kind of experiences. Thank you very much for speaking to us about this. And I hope that we can all together continue to keep this conversation going and see more spaces for their testimonies, their voices and stories. Thank you. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much, Soumya and Chelza, for having us over. Yeah, thank you for such a good conversation. Thank you everyone for listening to Detention Solidarity Network's podcast. We'll be back with the next episode soon. Meanwhile, you can check out our work on our website www.detentionsolidarity.net and Twitter page at DeathSolNet.